Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Matthew. Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're going to continue building out the money supply of an economy. We're going to continue with M1 for the United States. All right. So continuing on here, building out the money supply. Uh, it makes sense, of course, to start, I think, with the dollar. But keep in mind here as we go through these videos. Uh, yesterday, we covered demand deposits. The day before that, we looked at M0 or physical cash versus vault cash or cash in banks. Uh, these are the same principles that exist uh, for each nation's money supply. You have money that is issued by the government or the state or the central bank. Uh, and then you have money that is issued by fiduciaries or issued by banks. And those are primarily, uh, those instruments are included in these M1, M2, M3 money supplies as we go up the ladder. And one thing I perhaps didn't make clear yet, we'll show it here with this graphic on the screen, is we have these basic M's, as they're called. And again, Paul Volcker and a lot of the economists uh, at the Fed in the 50s and the 60s started to build these money supplies out. M0, uh, when defined properly and when it makes the most sense, is cash that is outside of bank vaults and just physical currency that's sloshing around the economy. Then M1 is going to be M0 plus demand deposits. That's what we're going to talk about today. M2 is going to be M1 plus retail type savings instruments. M3 is M2 plus institutional type savings and monetary instruments. And generally the idea is from physical cash, M0 all the way up to M3, and some countries even use M4 or broader liquidity measures. Uh, M0 is supposed to be the most liquid money in the economy, most accepted, most transacted with, not necessarily most transacted with, but the most liquid, easiest uh, available to make a transaction at par value. Uh, so that's M0. And then as you go up the monetary stack, M1, M2, M3, uh, it's supposed to be from most liquid to less liquid. But that's not exactly, actually what's happening as you're going up the monetary stack is you're going from most regulated, right? most regulated money by the state, starting with the state money itself, the physical banknote, cash. Uh, you go up the stack there and you're going from most regulated to least regulated type of instrument. That's generally what's happening. In any event, let's get back to M1 here. And as I mentioned already, M1 is simply M0, cash outside of banks, cash outside of bank vaults, plus demand deposits. Now, as always, the United States Federal Reserve needs to make things complicated, and they made things complicated during the pandemic, during the COVID years with all the stimulus. This is the last time I'm going to mention this, but just briefly, briefly, uh, here is my M1 uh, curve that I've built out, and I'll continue to use this. Okay, and if you want to see the differences, I encourage you to check out the last video where I explained demand deposits versus other checkable deposits versus SIPIC, uh, the cash uh, in the process of collection. Uh, all of these are things that the United States tends to 
at some point be detailed on and then later be not very detailed on and it's not very helpful for long-term backwards compatible charts. In any event, this is the chart that I'm gonna use for M1. Okay, so we see a big jump here uh, during the pandemic uh, to where we're at about 9.5 trillion dollars of M1 money in the United States today. 9,500 billion dollars worth of M1 money in the United States. Compare that very briefly here to January 1959, the first sort of recording of the modern data here, 167, 170 billion dollars worth. And again, we will get to growth rates and how to properly interpret, say, the value of M1 here versus the value or the relative value of M1 here. And the best way to do that is compound annual growth. We're not going to do that here. Again, here, we're just going to dissect the curve a little bit, show you how it's made up. And I highly encourage you to check out the yesterday's video about demand deposits and the video before that about M0 for more. But the last point, again, I have to mention it because the Fed, the, uh, the genius overlords at the Federal Reserve, they like to make things complicated. They claim they lack resources and changes in regulations, so on and so forth. So they have discontinued M1. So I can't use their M1 anymore. I have to calculate my own to make a backwards compatible curve. That's what this is. But just to show you for the last time, this is the Fed's M1 curve from when it was discontinued uh, in May 2020. Here it is, the black line. So it's a little bit different. Let's just go to the early years. Uh, the savings and loan crisis, I believe, because other checkable deposits are not included in my curve. They are included in their curve. Make their curve a little bit higher here in the 80s, uh, whereas typically my curve is a little bit higher and it continues today to be a little bit higher. And in fact, kind of a lot higher. But it's just the best that I can do, unfortunately, because the monetary overlords have decided to uh, basically turn M1 into a, into a money supply that's almost analogous to M2. Again, we talked about it yesterday. This is for Regulation D was changed, where basically the difference, the, require, the regulatory requirements between a savings account, which is never included in M1, versus a checking account or a demand deposit or a site deposit account, which is always included in M1, are trivial. The differences now are trivial. You can make as many transactions as you want in a savings account versus a checking account. But in any event, this is absolute nonsense to not continue collecting data of checking accounts versus savings accounts, regardless of regulatory reasons, because banks can make their own decisions about how they want to offer checking services versus savings services. And I hasten to say, all other nations in the world still only include site deposits, demand deposits in M1, except for the Federal Reserve. So this is why I have to make my own backwards compatible curve. Yes, at this point, because of it, again, check out my last video for more information on how I'm doing this. Because of the change, I am probably overstating, I'm definitely overstating M1 here in April of 2020, the last month basically of available data uh, from the Fed's discontinued series. I'm definitely overstating it by $900 billion. Okay, but nonetheless, I catch the, the trend. That's the most important thing here is to understand the trend and compound annual growth still works with the trend. And we can still generally understand what's happening with the trend here and with my number. Whereas if the Federal Reserve number, if I showed you what happened in May of 2020 with the United States M1 money supply, it would be $10 trillion higher. 
maybe even $11 trillion higher at this point in going from April to May 2020. So the Federal Reserve, they definitely blazed the trail as far as uh, fiduciary media and these M1, M2, M3 curves went in the 50s and the 60s. Other nations followed suit, building their own curves. Unfortunately, the Federal Reserve thinks they need to be complicated uh, and do things in ways that are just nonsensical for backwards compatible data. Uh, but this is how they do it. And this is my workaround is to build this curve this way. And if you're curious, again, the difference between the demand deposits, other checkable deposits, so on and so forth, please do check out the prior video that we did. So I'm taking it off now. This is M1 for the United States as I am defining. And again, how is M1 typically defined, always defined by every central bank in the world except for the Federal Reserve at the moment? Uh, it's very simply, it's this money supply, M0, which is all the physical currency that exists outside of bank vaults. And if you remember from the first video that we did on this series, this is the vast majority of physical cash exists outside of bank vaults, exists outside of what we call vault cash, plus demand deposits or site deposits or checking deposits. It is indeed the most liquid type of account or deposit in the banking system. That is the demand deposit or the site deposit. And this is M1. This is how M1 looks. Let's go before Bretton Woods here. You see that of the $170 billion of M1, okay, it's, this is a, not a stacked curve. I'm just showing you M1 and then cash outside of banks. So from the $170 billion in January 1959, $28 billion of that uh, was actual physical cash, physical greenbacks and coins in January of 1959. And coins at that time, by the way, were primarily made up of silver, no longer the case after uh, the 60s. And so you can intuit or you can find out the difference there. Roughly $140 billion is in demand deposits. The light green area, the difference there basically between the total and the cash outside banks or M0 will be demand deposits. Let's reset the zoom here again. And this is how the curve looks. And then the final thing basically to intuit here or to show you how we can make a good comparison to understand how the money supply has worked in the United States banking system is to compare this uh, thing we call M0, which is cash, physical cash outside of banks versus the M1 liquid money supply. And here we're gonna do that on the right axis right now. Okay, so M0, the physical cash that exists outside of bank vaults, that just circulates in the economy, that's in grocery store tills, cash registers, private vaults, under mattresses, in wallets, in billfolds. How much does it make as a percentage of M1? You see, actually, it's a very low percentage historically. And I will actually show for certain nations, uh, the UK, Denmark, they have some pretty good data of this uh, deep into history here. Uh, the United States, only in the modern era, as I mentioned, started to compile these M's in the 50s and the 60s and kind of paved the way for how M's should be defined in the banking system. Um, but you see here, we're, we're still under a, a pseudo gold standard here. It's the gold exchange standard. Uh, and physical currency is theoretically backed by some gold that central banks can demand from the Federal Reserve. And that physical currency, the dollar, uh, only makes up at this time roughly... 
you know, 15 to 18 percent before the gold standard ended in its entirety in 1971, physical cash was only 15 to 18 percent of the M1 money supply. And remember, the other part of physical cash that's issued by the central bank is in bank vaults. That's actually inside banks. So that's not on this chart. An important point to make here. When you're looking at these M curves, it's the same for M0, M1, M2, M3, and so on. You're looking at the client-facing or consumer-facing money. I almost, I think I said it last video, I want to say retail, but that's not even correct because companies are included here too as we build things out. They are included with demand deposits and they will be included in uh, future money supply curves, okay? Whether you're a physical person or a legal person, uh, you can have a demand deposit and that is a client-facing or consumer-facing to the bank type of account. And the, uh, the vault cash, those cash and coins that actually sit in those fancy vaults with the big doors that are the subject of many movies, that's a very, very small portion of the physical cash issued, as we talked about in the first video. Typically 90, 90 plus percent, sometimes 95 percent of all the physical currency that's issued by a nation is not in a bank vault, but it is included in M1. We do catch it in the M1 curve where we are consumer facing or client facing for a liquid money supply. Now I wanna make a, uh, a comment here on Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of people like to use M1 as a curve that compares to Bitcoin. Some people like to use M2. They don't use M3 because uh, the United States doesn't publish M3 anymore, as I alluded to earlier, although Every other central bank in the world does publish an M3 or an M4 in some cases even. Nonetheless, uh, it's very misguided to just take a money supply curve such as M1 or even M2 and say, hey, that applies to Bitcoin. That is what the Bitcoin market cap will eventually reach. Remember, the Bitcoin market cap roughly right now is less than $500 billion, 400 and some billion dollars. $9.5 trillion market cap of the United States M1 supply. Hey, you know, the Bitcoin bulls like to just slap, slap that number on uh, Bitcoin's market cap, find a price and say, this is what it's going to be. That is completely erroneous, completely wrong. It's not how banking works at all. It shows no understanding of the banking system. First of all, Bitcoin is global. This is not a global money supply. This is only the United States dollar. Yes, portions of this M0 and a large portion of this M0 supply, by the way, which let's just take uh, off M1 here. Now we're just looking at M0, uh, $2.2 trillion. A large portion of that exists outside of the United States, but that is beside the point. The vast majority of this money supply, the M1 money supply is just United States money. It's the United States economy, the United States most liquid money supply. Bitcoin is global. The United States M1 money supply is not. That's the first mistake. The second mistake, is that they completely ignore that M1, the light shaded area of M1 here. Remember, what does it mean? What is the light shaded area of the M1 money supply? It's demand deposits. It's an account that is created by a bank for a customer. That's not economically analogous to the way the Bitcoin protocol works at all. The Bitcoin protocol doesn't rely on a bank. It doesn't rely on one fiduciary institution in the economy at all. Bitcoin is for everyone. It can be run. The node can be run by everyone. This has nothing to do 
with the fiduciary system of banks. And now I hasten to say again, there's no reason to think that a Bitcoin system could not develop globally into a system that we currently have or a system that competes with the type of system that we currently have, a fiat standard, which we've had since 1971, as we know from prior videos and seen from the timeline right here. This is a pure fiat standard. From this point, there's no legal requirement for any central bank to hold gold, backing that very important term that people like to use, backing their currencies, even though central banks do hold 1.1 billion ounces of gold for the 6.4 billion ounces of gold mined throughout all time. Uh, even though that is the case, there is no legal requirement anywhere except for the euro. There is a requirement for the euro. That's a major currency that does have a requirement to hold gold. Uh, there's no requirement for any central bank to hold gold. It's a pure fiat standard. And for the dollar and for most of the world, that ended here in 1971. So this is a fiat banking system. So people like to say, well, no, this is liquid. This is something that compares to Bitcoin because it's liquid money. Again, this is just the United States money supply. And if you want to talk liquid money, a liquid money, a liquid state-based fiat currency that would compare to Bitcoin in some way on this chart, it's not M1. It's not the demand deposit portion of M1. It's just M0 on this chart. And this is just dollars. Again, this is just the United States greenback that's outside of banks. This is a money supply that compares to Bitcoin, but it's not even the only amount of base money that compares to Bitcoin. Because as, I, as I've alluded to in prior videos, I haven't described it yet. Remember, M0, which is the dark green shaded area here, that is a subset of base money, but it's not the entire base money. And it is base money, the monetary base. If you want to find a money supply that economically equates to what Bitcoin is, the Bitcoin protocol, the base level uh, protocol, the base layer of the Bitcoin system, all right, Bitcoins or the Satoshi, even the Satoshi is actually a better way to put it because the Satoshi, which is 100 uh, million pieces of a Bitcoin, one Satoshi, that is the native unit, the base level of the protocol, just like M0 is the base level of the consumer-facing fiduciary system. And again, I hasten to say, it's not the total base money. So Bitcoin, 21 million Bitcoin, that's the total amount of base money that Bitcoin system will work. Banks could hold it, individuals could hold it, governments could hold it. Just like uh, base money in the fiat system, this is only a portion of base money. And people confuse this all the time. M0 is not the monetary base. M0, which is here, is only a portion of the monetary base. And tune in for future videos where we dissect the monetary base more. But now we're just looking at the banking system. We're just looking at the fiduciary system, the most liquid bank type of assets. That of course includes uh, assets that are outside of the bank, that is physical cash and coin, right, which is issued by the government. And it includes market money, which is uh, bank money, which is the light green shaded portion of the chart here that you see. And that has definitely uh, massively increased. You see it was uh, only roughly $5 trillion. It's almost doubled, almost doubled here uh, since the COVID years. And you see as a percentage, it went from roughly physical cash, M0, went from roughly a third, basically, of uh, M1 money uh, pre-pandemic to now only being about 23% of M1 
money. Last point I want to say about this chart is, let's look at this chart. Again, it's not, we will show longer term M1 money breakdowns here on this channel. Uh, for the United States, the best data only goes back, unfortunately, to January 1959. Although I will get further for the United States as well. Uh, but we can see even here, this is during the pseudo gold standard, pre-1971. Look at the proportion of M0 compared to bank deposits. All right, again, sub 20%, sub 18%, all the way here from the entire length of the 60s. And then look at how physical cash grows as a proportion of M1 throughout the rest of the decades until the global financial crisis. Physical cash even expands as its proportion of M1 money. So what does that 40% of M1 mean? It means 40% of the most liquid money supply is physical cash, which is just out in the economy. It has nothing to do with the bank. It's held in people's wallets, under their mattresses, and their billfolds, and grocery store tills, and cash registers, so on and so forth. 40% of M1 money is physical cash on the eve of the financial crisis. That means only 60% of M1 money on the eve of the financial crisis is in site deposits, or demand deposits, or checking accounts. Only 60%. Whereas here it was over 80%. Now it's only 60%. So this again addresses the misnomer that unfortunately, a school of economics, which I very much uh, agree with a lot of things, they have this fascination with the demand deposit and fractional reserve banking and all of these things. Though I'm not showing you the fraction of the deposit. We showed that in the last video. Vault cash to demand deposits, which has always been low throughout the centuries. Note here that if demand deposits are only 60% of the M1 money stock, right, that sacred demand deposit, it's only 60% of the M1 money stock here on the eve of the financial crisis. And it was 80% plus here before, uh, you know, during the gold standard. Can we really blame the demand deposit on the financial crisis? I mean, could we blame the growth of physical cash, which isn't even growing that fast, by the way. Note here, let's just say, um, if we just look at the dark green M0 here, we have a we have a growth rate, which I'll show you in future videos. That's kind of constant here. Okay, it had a bump uh, during Y2K when people were really scared. But the dark green, let's even take off M1. The dark green grows pretty constant here. You can see that it's increasing at a faster clip after the global financial crisis. So this is completely contrary to the narrative that it's the sacred demand deposit that is causing all the problems all of the boom and the bust cycle. It's just not the case. You can see that as a proportion of M1 money, demand deposits were at their lowest ever pre-financial crisis. So there must be something else going on and we'll explore that for sure. But I only want to address this point, M1, M1 money here. It's demand deposits are extremely low on the eve of the financial crisis demand deposits have grown more now, all the way back to 24%. When was the last time we were there? You know, 1980, for what that's worth. All right, by the way, interest rates were at an all-time high, exactly here at 1980. Uh, but having checking accounts, demand deposits, site deposits, which is the old term for a demand deposit, they're now nearly 80% again, 77% again of M1 money. Okay, so if anything, 
demand deposits now are much higher. But you, you certainly can't blame the financial crisis on an excess liquidity of demand deposits because that just wasn't the case. It's an absolutely false narrative. Unfortunately, the people don't look at the money supply to understand it's an absolutely false narrative pre-financial crisis. So let's see what it means for demand deposits exploding here uh, during the pandemic. And obviously, you can understand why. Stimulus checks, uh, bailouts, so on and so forth that are actually going into Main Street and not just Wall Street. Uh, that is no doubt a concern. Absolutely a concern for inflation and the Fed isn't raising interest rates. So that's the M1 money breakdown for the dollar. See you soon where we'll talk about what goes in M2.